Step into the world of decay, abandonment, and chaos. The story of an urban explorer starts here, at the beginning. Welcome to the podcast you've been looking for all along. This is No Tracers. Here, we take only photos. We leave only footprints. And remember, leave no trace. Welcome back to the No Tracers podcast. I'm your host, Kay. I'm known as No Tracers. No.Tracers on Instagram. No Tracers on TikTok. No Tracers Urbex on YouTube. And NoTracers.com is the website. Welcome to the show about urban exploring, where I interview other explorers from around the world about their time exploring abandoned places, how they got started, some of their scariest explorations, whether they like to explore alone with people, their tips and tricks for you. If you're new to the show, please hit the subscribe button. Got episodes coming out every single Friday. If you guys didn't know, I have a couple of books out on NoTracers.com. The first one is No Tracers, an Urban Explorer's Diary. It's a photography coffee table type of book uh, full of my photos and stories of things that I've explored over the years from America to Portugal to Canada and back. If you want to check that out, please do so. I also just released an urban exploring guidebook. So if you are looking for tips and tricks to get into the hobby or if you want to support me as an artist and creator, go check out that guidebook. I hope you guys enjoy that. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Abandoned Coastal Georgia. You can find them on Instagram at Abandoned Coastal Georgia. We're going to be diving into the history of a bunch of these abandoned properties out in Georgia and just the crazy stories behind them, some of his favorite explorations, his most dangerous exploration, and just the craziness that happens in the coastal side of Georgia that you may not know about. Before we get into the episode, I need to thank our partner, Liquid Death Mountain Water. If you've never heard of Liquid Death, well, hey, I've got an ad for you in three, two, one. Raining from the Austrian Alps. They found a new kind of water. Water that is sure to raise you from your grave. Coming in three flavors. Bury it alive. Severed lime. And mango chainsaw. What will you choose when the reaper comes? Make your decision today at liquiddeath.com and use code just the letter K for 10% off your order. Liquid Death, not for the faint of heart. So if you would like 10% off your order at liquiddeath.com, use code just the letter K and you'll get 10% off your entire order. Thank you guys for doing that. Thank you for supporting me and thank you for supporting this podcast. Without further ado, Abandoned Coastal Georgia, please introduce yourself and how long you've been exploring to the No Tracers audience. Um, my name is Paul Meacham. Uh, on Instagram, I am at Abandoned Coastal Georgia. I have a, a couple of other aliases, but that's the one that I post pretty much all of my exploration stuff under. I do some rock photography, some music okay. photography uh, on at Paulie Rock Photo 
But uh, yeah, I've been exploring as long as I can remember. We lived by some railroad tracks when I was a little kid, and I used to like wander down the railroad tracks to like deserted railroad cars and stuff like that. And uh, then we moved overseas. I I grew up in the Caribbean, and um, we lived on kind of like a, a remote island called Nevis, which at the time that I lived there, it was largely unexplored by archaeologists. So they were like abandoned British fortifications in, in the jungle and sugar mill ruins and stuff like that. And that's just something that I've been into, you know, my whole life and the history of it too. I've always been into photography and history and it's just, you know, two things that have come together. Wow. I love that you grew up overseas. I also spent a lot of time growing up overseas. Uh, I lived in the Middle oh, East. Oh, cool. Uh, my dad worked for an oil company, so we moved over there when I was 16, and that was kind of before I got into exploring. So unfortunately, I didn't really get to go see any cool abandoned things over there. Plus, I was in like Dubai, so like there's not really anything abandoned in Dubai yet because it's still so new as far as like when it was built sure, and developed yeah, and all yeah. that stuff, and they're still, still building it up, but... Uh, for you, can you take me into your first abandoned exploration ever uh, that you can remember? God I, God, I don't know what my first abandoned ever was. Because like I said, when I was a little kid, I was crawling around old buildings and stuff. Like uh, my parents should should be probably put in jail for letting me run around the way <laughs> that I did. But um, I guess the, the bug and really wanting to photograph it. And I wish I'd had a better camera at the time. Like I've got some old uh, film negatives and stuff from when I was a teenager in Nevis. And a couple of the first things that I explored and was really into um, were Fort Charles in Nevis. It's a British fort from mm -hmm. uh, the uh, 18th century. And there was a place called Nelson's Lookout, which is on uh, Saddle Hill in Nevis. And I was just fascinated with all that stuff. We had moved from the States to this little island in the, the Caribbean. And I would take old maps out of books and look to see where these fortresses were like in the jungle. And I'd just go out there and there they would be. And uh, my wow. dad had this buddy, his name was Vince Hubbard. He literally wrote the book about Nevis, uh, Swords, Ships and Sugar was Vince Hubbard's first book about Nevis. And me and Vince would go out into the jungle and, you know, hack our way through these, I mean, like sometimes really densely overgrown places and um, find these fortifications that were mostly British, you know, from the 1700s, 1800s in the Caribbean. And, you know, we found cannonballs and cannons and wow. uh, pipe stems. They're the, the, they would smoke these really long clay pipes that had like an exaggerated um, kind of like filter tip. They were really long and they'd smoke until the pipe got gummy at one end and then break that off and throw it away. So there would be pipe stems like all over the island, which was like the, you know, the 18th century equivalent to a cigarette. But so that wow. stuff was like That's everywhere. Fascinating. But yeah, Nevis is really what like, totally hooked me on history and exploration and everything. And a lot of that stuff is, uh, well, it's all still there. Some of it's been restored and made into like tourist things and, um, you know, mm. but some of it's still out in the jungle. It's pretty cool. 
That's super cool. What a cool way to grow up too. And, you know, going back to what you were saying about, you know, wandering around on train tracks and finding abandoned stuff that way. Uh, I had a guest on Lost Americana and uh, he actually gave that secret away. Like if you want to find old farmhouses, just follow the, the train tracks because they go through those smaller towns. Like they used to go through all the small towns and that are now abandoned. And, you know, the old farmhouses are still out there off the train tracks. Cause that's how they used to get their supplies into town. So it just, you bringing that up kind of reminded me of what he said. And I think it's such a great tip for urban explorers. Um, for you, like what kind of gear are you bringing into these places that you're exploring? Uh, like backpacks, shoes, things that you would recommend for new explorers that are getting into the hobby. Well, just real quick to backtrack on the uh, railroad thing where I live here, that is, that is like one of the number one things because we have, uh, a lot of old railroad towns here. In fact, like if you mm -hmm. check out, uh, at abandoned coastal Georgia, you'll see some, um, like abandoned railroad ghost towns. We had these towns that would spring up in the turpentine industry or, um, you know, shipping cotton and lumber and stuff like that here in the backwoods of coastal Georgia. And they existed for, you know, a decade or a couple of decades. And then by the time that they had exhausted the natural resources in that place, <laughs> they just kind of blew away. And over the years, I mean, even the railroad tracks have been, um, pulled up and recycled and they'll just be like a shaft of, you know, nothing out through the woods where the train tracks used to be. So even if there's not train tracks, there's often places where there were train tracks. And if you look on uh, like satellite imagery, that's a tip I would give satellite imagery. I, I use mm -hmm. a lot because um, we're, we're mostly rural and we're out in the woods. So, um, you know, there's there's not really a whole lot of like uh, big industrial sites, things like that. It's mostly things that are really hidden, like deep in the woods. So um, bug spray, long pants, sturdy boots. Um, I travel pretty light. I usually only bring uh, like a camera or two. Um, I have... Uh, just a, like a couple of lenses that I use, like a, uh, like a 18 to 24. And if I know I'm going to be shooting some stuff from far away, cause we have a lot of things that are like, you know, a, across a river or on some islands or some mm. stuff like that. And I'll use something bigger, like a 70 to 200, but that's usually all I roll with. You know, um, we have a lot of like uh, stuff out in the woods that'll get you. So like bug spray, <laughs> It's like the number one tool in this area of the world. Well, yeah, I mean, that's one tip that like hasn't even been brought up on the show. And I've done almost 100 episodes of these and like bug spray is a huge thing that should be brought. You know, people just disregard that until you're being swarmed or bitten, chewed up, you know, and I think that that's one thing to add to the kit, you know, uh, especially if you're doing this stuff like out in the woods and the swamps, you know, things like that, where there are. Uh, bugs, mosquitoes, ticks, oh, all yeah, that yeah. kind of ticks stuff. Ticks are super like, bad here. Know. Like I said, we're, we're oh, yeah. super rural. So a lot of this stuff, um, like I've had to, you know, get buddies to get me permission to be on some land that's like way out somewhere or like rent a boat and have somebody take you in a boat to somewhere. And, you know, there's no facilities or anything like that in any of these places. So, you know, um, you got to bring what you need and, and something like that. That's almost like a, a day hiker camping. So, you know, water, 
stuff like that, you know, maybe like a, a knife or something. That's like the only time I would really bring like a backpack or anything is like if I'm going out on a boat and I'm going to be gone somewhere in the woods like all day, just your standard hiking stuff so you don't get, you know, stuck or, or trapped or can't communicate back home or anything. But, but yeah, if I'm just wandering around back roads taking pictures and stuff, it's usually just me, long pants and a camera. Long pants are essential around here. Again, the, the ticks and the bugs and the briars and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, we talked a little bit about Nashville. Uh, that's where I live now. And I'm curious to see like what you've kind of explored outside of the, the Georgia area. Oh man. Okay. So I lived in Nashville and around Nashville in and around Nashville for most of the nineties. I actually worked at uh one Oh three KDF when back when it was a rock station. And I know there's probably some urban explorers who have been on top of the Stallman building in downtown Nashville where those big, <laughs> red letters are, but yeah. Um, I see, I haven't been to Nashville in a long time. And from what I see, you know, and read, it's really, really changed a lot. But a couple of the places that I remember exploring in Nashville were um, Fort Negley, which I believe has been mm -hmm. restored and is kind of like a, a tourist thing now. But in the 90s, that was like, it was totally overgrown. And um I think previous to that, like in the 60s, it had been a thing, but it had been kind of left and uh, there were a lot of, um, you know, transient folks living in it. And um, that was just fascinating. I'm kind of glad that uh, it got saved because it's a really important, cool part of history. And there was a, uh, yeah. a really large warehouse district kind of in between, uh, I don't know what they're calling the, the big arena that's downtown now. It used to be the Gaylord Entertainment. Oh, the Nissan Stadium. Say what? Nissan. Okay, yeah, Nissan yeah. Stadium. Back in my day, it was like the, the Gaylord Entertainment Center or something like that. They had just mm. built it. And they, to build that and some other stuff back in where like the cannery is now, there were like all sorts of abandoned uh, warehouses back there. And there was like the occasional um, like antique store or, you know, car shop or something in those. And, and speckled in there, there were old, like, 1800s houses. Um, I think all that stuff is gone, man, which is really a shame because that was, that was super cool. You could get lost all up in those buildings, and those were some of my really fun explorers. But, man, I didn't have a camera then, and I had you know, zero mm. pictures of all that, but that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's crazy, like, the parts of cities that are, like, left behind or just forgotten about or, you know, completely abandoned for a little bit or, and then later demolished or re restored or whatever. I recently went up to uh, Cincinnati for a show, and uh, we were driving to, like, the farmer's market area, and there's, like, two blocks of fully just abandoned shit, like, abandoned houses, and they painted, like, fake facades on them to make them not look mm -hmm. abandoned. <laughs> But they don't have windows like they're boarded. Some of them are boarded up. Some of them are just wide open. And, you know, to to drive down there, I, I literally was like, yo, I feel like I'm in a movie set right now. Like, it doesn't look like this should be here. Like, it's so strange to, like, drive through those kind of areas, especially in a city, you know, like it, it, or just outside of a big city like that. But I think it's a. Uh, kind of a common thing that that i've noticed and it, it just goes back to what you were talking about here about here in nashville back in the day like how it was kind of similar to that aspect but 
you know, I unfortunately didn't have time to like go explore this area and was told like it's not a safe area. But I mean, like most of the stuff we explore, like isn't really the safest. <laughs> right. You know what? I'd say like Nashville now compared to then is way safer. <laughs> as long sure. as you're smart, you'll be fine. I mean, I would right. love to go. I've always been fascinated with some of the, you know, industrial centers in the like, you know, Detroit and St. Louis and Cleveland and um, I've seen some amazing photos uh, out of there, which are totally different than what I have around me. Like I said, I'm mostly rural um, and those big industrial centers that are all brick and steel and everything like that. I would I'd love to go shoot some stuff like that. I would uh, I'd totally be down for a road trip. Somebody to show me around Detroit or something. That'd be cool. Yeah, I'll have to link you up with a uh, Detroit Unseen. Right He's uh, up and up in there, and you know, does all that stuff. And you know, the the Detroit area is, you know, it's uh, it, it can be sketchy in certain places, you know. So you gotta just kind of keep an eye out. But uh, still, a lot of really cool things to explore over there, and you know, old car factories right and on. warehouses and all that kind of stuff that you're you're trying to seek out is definitely definitely a plenty up there. Um, for you, do you have any urban exploration injury stories that you can share? Um, I have hung myself on some barbed wire and things like that every now and then and probably should have gotten a tetanus shot and and didn't. I hate to say that. <laughs> I'm probably due for a tetanus <laughs> shot for sure. But uh, nothing major, like a, a few scrapes here and there. Um, you know, uh, lots lots of briars and lots of uh barbed wire and stuff down here so you you come away with a few scrapes i usually protect myself though even though it it gets pretty hot down here and it stays pretty warm in the winter time too i always wear mm. long pants and and long sleeves cuz yeah if you if you don't plan to go out into the woods and you're just driving around and you see something like oh i'm going to jump out there then if you get you, when you get back in the car your legs are just trashed scrapes yep, and, and bites <laughs> yep that's for sure yeah pants are definitely essential when exploring and I, you know i know a couple people that wear shorts all the time and i'm like what are you literally what are you doing? now i do wear shorts all the time i'm one of those guys that'll wear shorts like all no. winter but god man yeah once you once you get destroyed by you know briars and stuff in the woods enough you're you're done <laughs> it's like that's the one yep. time i'll wear long Absolutely. pants Yep, absolutely. So take me to your scariest exploration that you've ever had. And this could be, I don't know how you feel about paranormal stuff, or this could be just like a scary encounter, anything like that. Well, man, I don't know how I feel about paranormal stuff. And I've had some weird <laughs> stuff happen to me that I can't explain. So I'm open to it, but still out for decision, if I could say it that way. There was one place... Um, it, it was a former slave plantation here in coastal Georgia. And uh, I was out there, you know, pretty far from people uh, around sunset. And somebody was burning a fire somewhere. And the smoke was kind of drifting through these trees. And the smoke was so thick that it seemed like the fire had to be pretty close. And... I heard a really, I, I'm totally into music, and uh, I heard some singing that was kind of like Afro-Caribbean. It wasn't blues, and it wasn't like uh, like the music that's really associated, like the 
the ring shout stuff that we have here in coastal Georgia. It was kind of like a weird mix of that. And, you know, I'm intrigued. So I'm walking through the woods into this like dense smoke, trying to figure out where this music came from. And I walked around until it was like totally dark and I never could find the origin of the smoke, which was weird because there shouldn't have been anybody out there. And, uh, until I finally, it's just like, I have to go. It's late and I'm going to get lost in the woods. I have to turn around and leave. And to this day, I don't know what was up with that. And I've never heard any music like that or, you know, heard anybody describe anything like that before. But that was totally, that's just weird. <laughs> like you walked into a time yeah, portal something. and I mean, it was, yeah, appeared it was in like some other world. Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, for sure. Like you would have just been lost in the woods forever in that episode of Twilight Zone, right? <laughs> just walking around in the smoke, trying to find where it came from. That's crazy. Like that kind of stuff freaks me out a little bit. Is but were you alone during? Oh this? yeah, totally. I was totally. There was a <laughs> there was like a stray dog that kind of led me to all this. When I got to the place that I was going, there was a dog there, and um, when the smoke started coming in, he kind of headed back off that way. And I was like, okay, we're way out in the woods. I'm going to save this dog. If you know, somebody has abandoned him out here and he disappeared. Sure. He just split, you know? So, so I assume he's okay. You know? Yeah. Dang. That's great. What an interesting experience. Yeah. Yeah. I tell people about that and I, I get the feeling they're like, yeah, okay. But that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so do you have like a most dangerous exploration or like a riskiest exploration that you can share? There's been a couple of times where um, my buddies have taken me out on uh, boats and stuff here in between the islands. And um, there's a place on uh, Sapelo Sound, which is in between the mainland and Sapelo Island here in coastal Georgia. And they call it the tea kettle because when you get out there, there's a bunch of uh, estuaries that kind of meet in the middle. So the, the, the currents all kind of hit one another and it percolates out mm. there like a tea kettle. And man, I've been out there in a boat way too small for that, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> trying to keep cameras dry and everything on top of that to where it's just like, mm. ooh, let's get across this thing quick, you know. Dang. Yeah, that's nuts. I, so I've never done anything that like requires yeah. a boat. There is a, a fort out in Baltimore, like in the water, and you have to like hire a guy to bring you to the place and like wait for you or come back yeah. for you. And like I've wanted to do it or you can kayak out there. But like, I don't know, that kind of like sketches me out. Like, what if I just get forgotten about on an island yeah. somewhere? <laughs> just I kayak a lot. And but I'm always afraid to like, I bring a bunch of camera equipment with me on a kayak. I mean, I've yeah. got like a, a GoPro that I hardly ever use, but you know, I'm, I'm scared to tip over and put all my stuff in the bottom of the marsh, you know? Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, I, speaking of GoPros you don't use, I feel like there's like thousands of GoPros that are just out there just sitting on someone's shelf, just not being used. And it breaks my little heart. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I've more than once I've been like, I'm going to use this thing. This is going to be the year of the GoPro. And I, I never have. <laughs> I did recently, I, I, a buddy of mine has introduced me to drone stuff and I'm just taking baby steps yes. into drone stuff. And very cool. Yeah, I think that's going to be awesome. pretty cool because we have a lot of stuff out here that it's like, uh, it's just 
like an island that's kind of hard to get to, and you kind of want to look at it before you spend the time getting out there. And the drone is really useful for that. Sometimes the stuff isn't far away. It's just hard to get to. And we've done a little bit of stuff sure. with the drone on that. So that's coming. That's the yeah. future. That's cool. Yeah. I'm a certified drone pilot. I do that. I freelance as a videographer full time and you know, drones are my favorite. I love them. They just can show you a way in, show you a way out, show you security mm-hmm. or just get you some really cinematic shots of what you're trying to capture. You know, it's, it's a great way to get a new vantage point of what you're trying to explore. For sure. And so that's cool that you're, you're bringing that into your arsenal. Um, do you have a favorite history of a place? Um, actually, okay. There is i I've actually got a book coming out on July 25th and it's going to be called abandoned coastal Georgia. And I guess one of the main places here, which really got me curious about our local history, I've lived here about 12 years now. And one of the first places I explored when I got here, um, people here just call it the factory or the ruins. And it's a bunch of big concrete slabs just kind of out in the woods, kind of on the edge of an industrial area into like a residential neighborhood. But back in um, 1918, they tried to build an ammunition factory there. And uh, I researched the place. No one knew anything about this. So I was, I got super curious about it. I was like, why does no one know about this? And I want to know more. So I, you know, did all the research, the library and the old newspapers and all the stuff you do. And this place had a fascinating history of um, like there was a government contract that was granted and they had this deadline to beat and they were going to have to build this huge facility um, within a year's time, less than a year's time. Um, and since a lot of soldiers or a lot of a lot of the Georgia labor force was already fighting in World War One or, uh, you know, tied up with other things agriculturally here, um, there was a big fight with the labor department to get people to come and work here. And an interesting story that I discovered was uh, in 1917, uh, unemployed Puerto Rican laborers were um, contracted by the, the government to come and work at military facilities or future military facilities here in the South. And Puerto Rico had had uh, recently um, attained citizenship, um, you know, just in time for World War One, you know, to come in, mm-hmm. come and help Uncle Sam. So they brought a bunch of these guys up here and they helped build Paris Island in South Carolina and Fort Bragg in North Carolina and another similar factory to the one here in Brunswick, Georgia, in Arkansas. And it was the height of the influenza epidemic in 1917-18 and these guys were promised you know great jobs good rations and you're going to get to come to the states and you know you know make something of yourself and be able to take some money home and all this stuff well they were not uh well treated i guess you would say and like the influenza epidemic just ripped through these guys and it 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 killed like dozens and hundreds of people in different places um how I, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but how I found that, I was actually in a cemetery in South Carolina researching something else. 
and I was walking down this row of graves and I noticed all of these Spanish names with the, you know, the typical uh, U.S. government military headstone that you see. Right. And it didn't say anything about army or military unit or anything. It just said the name and then U.S. government. So I looked up, you know, what those guys could be. And that's when I found out about the uh, the guys that were brought up here as as laborers. And then when I found out that they were brought up for our thing locally, this factory here in Brunswick, that just blew my mind. And the further deeper I dived into that, I found a newspaper article from, uh, it was early 1919, and the government had sued our local undertaker for not properly embalming the 20 or 25 Puerto Ricans they said that died here. So the government sent um, people to come dig these guys up in our local cemetery, and... It seems pretty clear that the undertaker did what he said, um, but I don't know if the government ever paid him. And then the story goes cold. There was a uh, even a thing in that article that said that the government asked the local newspapers not to say anything about this. And to this day, Whoa. there is no trace of these guys anywhere around here. Um, like I said, up in the cemetery in um, South Carolina, this is in the uh, the Beaufort National Cemetery in uh, Beaufort, South Carolina. Um, the guys that are buried there, they were fellas that succumbed to the influenza while they were working on Paris Island. And out in Arkansas, where they were contracted to work on, uh, it's a picric acid factory. Picric was used to make uh, explosives. And in Arkansas, apparently there's like a, you know, at least a monument in the cemetery that says something about those guys. But our guys have, like, totally disappeared. And the only thing about those fellas is, like, this one newspaper article. And that's, uh, unbelievably, there's a longer story than I just told <laughs> in, the, in the book that's coming up. Yo. But, yeah, man, I got I, I'm totally fascinated about those guys. And I would love to, if anybody hears this and recognizes the story, I would love to know some more about these guys because I've, I've scoured everything I can to find some sort of record of them being here. And they were um, supposedly buried in Palmetto Cemetery in Brunswick, Georgia. Uh, the government came out here and, and dug, I think the quote was 24 or 25 of them up. And then they were reinterred, but there is no marker or no trace of them in that cemetery. There's like wow. no record of those guys. So, yeah, Yo, that's nuts. Right? Yeah, if anybody listening to this knows anything about this, please reach out to my guy here. Like, damn, like that's a crazy. First of all, like I love the history of this kind of stuff and like the fact that you dove so deep into it and it just kind of went cold. Like that, there's no like resolution to the story. Like we need more information mm -hmm. for sure. Damn, yeah, this guy should be recognized too. Um, yeah, that's that's one of those. You know, we're we're reckoning with social issues and stuff in in the country these days, and that is definitely mm -hmm. you know we've got a. We, that's kind of a big story of people that aren't acknowledged for uh, what they did, and um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a, a a brutal story too with the amount of folks that died. 
Um, Absolutely. And it really kind of corresponds with what we've got going on today, you know, with the, the, the pandemic and everything. And, you know, mm-hmm. when you read about like uh, the influenza pandemic of uh, like 1917, 1918, they argued about the same stuff that we did, you know, about the sanitary conditions. And I mean, even masks and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of parallels from that pandemic, you know, almost exactly 100 years ago to today. So that's pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, they say that history repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats itself. And it's true. You know, like this shit, we you think we'd learn from them, like what they failed at. But like, nope, we're still out here failing. Right. That's why it's good to remember this <laughs> stuff, day. too, because it's like, you know, yeah, you, you try at least to learn from your mistakes. Exactly. Yeah. So what do you do when you're not exploring abandoned places? Um, well, I'm the operations manager of a, a group of radio stations here. So I, I run uh, four radio stations. And, um, you know, I, I like to be outside kayaking, riding my bike. We're here at the beach and everything. Coastal Georgia is beautiful. So uh, I like being out here. Nice. And do you have any goal places, like bucket list items you're dying to explore that you haven't been to? You know, probably like with everybody else, I've always wanted to go to Pripyat. And with the Mm -hmm. stuff that's going on in Ukraine right now, that is just, you know, that hurts me. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's 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 a small, you know, piece of my heart that, you know, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to do that anytime soon. But I feel for those people and everything. But Absolutely. Yeah, man. That, yeah, I. That would be totally. I just cool. watched a. Yeah, and I've had people like stay there for extended periods. Like I, I have a friend that I interviewed on my other podcast about freelancing. Uh, he filmed a documentary out there for like a major network, uh, just about Chernobyl, and you know he got to live there for a week and told his story about what it was like there and what he saw and experienced, and you know it's it's devastating what has been done to Ukraine. Uh, it, it just like never it's never really ended for them you know and uh now i guess they've been essentially soldiers out there have gone to like near chernobyl like in the exclusion zone and they've kind of taken it over again and uh all the dust has been unsettled from the mm-hmm. ground so a lot of them have had to come down with radiation sickness uh, because they they were like bombing the area again and like just doing all this horrible stuff and so now it's like recontaminating the area so i don't know if we're gonna get to go there you know like they used to do like tours to chernobyl and you could hire a guide to right, take right, you there. Yeah. or there's people like shy an explorer from over there that just goes like on hikes for miles through the woods and just goes to, to chernobyl and checks it out and has climbed the satellite tower and all that stuff but yeah, unfortunately, like, I don't think we're going to be able to go there anytime soon. And I was trying to go there in November with my dad. I, I was over in the UK for a tour with a band and was going to meet up with my dad and try to go to Chernobyl for a couple of days and, like, get a tour guide and do the whole thing. And, you know, unfortunately, like, the status of that area was already kind of uh, close to combustion. And this was before the, the war was, like, declared over there. But... You know, it was even in November, like it was volatile. So like we were recommended not to go there. So unfortunately, like I I don't know when or if we'll be able to go back there, uh, maybe ever, which is super unfortunate. Um, But I mean, maybe one day, you know, it's it's still definitely on my list and I know it's on yours. Um, For you, if you could live 
in an abandoned place you've explored for an entire week, which one would it be? Ooh, if I could live there? Uh, guy, man. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Most of the places <laughs> I've just explored are like pretty fallen apart. So I don't know if I'd want to live there. Um, there is a really cool place here and it's in the book that's coming out. Um, T.L. Houston, who was one of the co-owners of the New York Yankees um, back in the 20s. He was him and his uh, business partner, Jacob Rupert. Those were the guys that signed uh, Babe Ruth to the team. They bought the Yankees when they were, you know, they were terrible and made them into the team Mm -hmm. that is the legacy now. And um He's there. His house is on this place called Butler Island, and Butler Island has a a pretty a complex and uh, deep legacy. It was a a slave island, uh, a rice plantation that was owned by one of the nation's founding fathers, um, and this this family owned it. The Butlers owned it for a couple hundred years, and then it was abandoned following the Civil War. And uh, T. L. Houston bought the place in the thirties after he retired from the Yankees and, um, made it like a, he, he was into the history. So he redid the rice fields and made it like a agricultural center and everything. And, um, it was a pretty cool story there. Um, great house. It's like a colonial revival house that was built in like 1927. And right now it's kind of in a state of, like when I was taking, I've been taking pictures of this house for like a decade plus. And when I first started wow. taking pictures of it, um, it had just been kind of left. Um, uh, literally the, the people that were occupying it, they just went away one day and didn't close the doors, didn't you know lock anything. And it stayed pretty intact for the longest time, but the weather here is pretty harsh. And then it finally attracted the attention of, of vandals and stuff. And now it is, um, boarded up and secured. So that's good. But, um, Mm. it got let pretty far. They, they let it go pretty far before people decided we need to save this place. So it's kind of beaten up right now, but it it looks like it's going to be saved and, you know, done something appropriate with, they wanted to put a restaurant in it at one time, which I'm like, nah, (laughs) you know, that's not cool. But I I think they're going to do something that reflects the history of the place. Sure. Yeah. And you know, it's things like books that are created with photos of these places. And I mean, you said you've been documenting this place for like a decade. I mean, it's things like that, that will help it get restored, you know? And I think that it's important that a lot of these places do get restored instead of just torn apart or burned down by an asshole like vandal that just goes in and sets something on fire, you know, which happens more often than not nowadays with these abandoned places. Uh, I, I just recently lost one of my favorite bandos out in California to fire um, it was a, an old asylum and, you know, I, I explored it many times and been all over the, the huge campus that it was on. And, you know, it, it recently got, I got hit up by a, a former, uh, guest of this show. Uh, and she shot me a text message and was like, Hey, I don't know if you heard, but the asylum got like burned down last night and I was like devastated. So hopefully they do get that, that place restored sooner rather than later before something, you know, worse happens to it. But uh, sounds like a, a beautiful place and I would love to check it out one day, even if it's boarded up, you know, just to see something like that is like 
just magical to see those old colonial style houses is such a treat, you know, because we don't really see them that much anymore. Oh yeah. And it's in a gorgeous place too. This Island is in a, uh, the river Delta of the Altamaha river. And I think the Altamaha river Delta is like the second largest river Delta in the United States, or at least in the lower 48, I think, um, if I'm right on that fact, but, uh, yeah, so there's all of, all of these islands, and uh, it's a wildlife sanctuary now. So there's lots of birds, and there are wow. tons of alligators and stuff. And um, <laughs> the deeper history of this island, um, like I was saying, uh, a guy named Pierce Butler was the original owner that had anything to do with agriculture. And he uh, owned hundreds of slaves across many different plantations in this area. Um, his... He was, uh, Pierce Butler is actually the guy, he was, he, he and his family were so in deep with slavery as an institution. He's the guy that um, made sure that the Fugitive Slave Act was in the United States Constitution, making sure that slaves were returned as property. So there's a pretty dark history on this island based wow. on that. His grandson... Uh, after generations of, he inherited it and, um, he wound up going through a bad divorce and he lost a bunch of money, uh, gambling and some other bad business decisions. He instituted what is referred to now as the weeping time. It was the largest sale of slaves in American history. And he shipped, uh, a bunch of the slaves from, um, Butler Island and St. Simon's Island, where I live, uh, to Savannah, and they, they put these folks at auction at a racetrack in Savannah and sold 429 enslaved people Holy shit. between uh, March 2nd and 3rd. I always remember that because it's my birthday, uh, 1859, wow. and uh, like seven people did not sell because they were infirmed or, you know, sick and, and stuff like that, but it's this tragic story of, you know, there was a there was a fellow from a newspaper in New York that wrote about it. And he said that, you know, these husbands were pleading on they're up on the auction block, you know, stripped naked, um, getting reviewed by these people that are attempting to purchase them. And they're pleading, you know, don't separate me from my family. And, you know, they did. And these people got shipped, Jesus. you know, all over the, the South. And um, mm-hmm. it broke these families up. And uh, that's something, I mean, that history has been known, but it's not something that people have really acknowledged and and, and reckoned yeah. with until really the past couple of years. Like when I started taking pictures of this, of this stuff and being out there and learning about it, I kind of felt like I was the, the only person that knew these stories. There's like a, you know, like a historical marker out there, but like, you know, you talk to anybody and they didn't know. And now every year, um, there's a commemoration and, uh, you know, local historic groups and local Afri- African-American groups uh, that are into preserving the history are now talking about that. And in wow. addition to the Houston house, um, there's like a, a rice mill chimney out there and, uh, you know, some other brickworks that are from the antebellum era that were built by slaves. I mean, that's their, you know, uh, legacy and architecture and everything. And um, that stuff is getting to the point, too, to where 
it really needs uh, some interest from a, a, a preservation group. There's a there's like a 75 foot rice mill chimney out there, and um, it's a it's been there since like the 1830s, and wow. only within the past year I've noticed that there's enough mortar falling out from be- between the bricks that you can see through it, and I that oh, really shit. really worries me. I would hate for this thing to fall. Because, I mean, it tells such an important story. It's like a, you know, a, a monument, really. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I feel like I'm going off. I could talk about this forever. <laughs> no, I love it. Like, you know, this episode is like the most history we've had talked about these abandoned places, you know. So, I, And I think it's important that we dive into that and do the research on these places that we're going into whether they're a big place, a small place, no matter how old they are, I think the history is important. And it's a huge reason why I love doing this stuff. You know, like I remember I went out to Portugal uh, for a couple of days and ended up exploring this huge, like 360 degree panoramic restaurant that was up on a hill that overlooked all of Lisbon. And I was just wondering to myself, like, I wonder what the architect that built this place would think of it now and like so i put out a call like uh, in a video that i made i was like if anybody knows this architect please have him reach out to me i would love to go explore it with him and get his insights and see what he thinks of it now in the current state that it's in just falling apart in decay and covered in graffiti because i mean you know the this this hobby that we have it's so much more than just a hobby like we're we're almost like historians in a way and especially like yourself you know you're very into the history of these places and i think that's that makes you stand out from a lot of other explorers which is super cool well cool thanks yeah it's it all seems to go hand in hand like you can't help but wonder about these places it's like right and especially if it's a place like that's local to you that you can revisit over and over again because every time you go back to it you notice something different or you learn something about it and you have that time to be like, you know, you'll just run into some extra piece of information that you didn't know. And after years, it all, the story all comes together. Exactly. So what do you hope for the future of urban exploring? Well, you know, I, uh, that's difficult for me because I, I really, really like to share the stories of these places. But then, you know, we also as explorers like to keep these places, you know, close to our ourselves because you worry about people going and trashing them. And mm-hmm. even if that's unintentional, um, you know, excess traffic on any place is going to cause, you know, more attention to it and, you know, I've, I've seen many, many places that, uh, um, you know, people will go and explore and it becomes a thing and it gets known about. And then like the landowner or whatever tears it down. And right. I would hate to see that happen wholesale across, you know, our community of, of people that, that like to do this. So I always preach, you know, what's what's the old saying about, you know, take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints kind of thing. Just super low impact. Whenever I, I usually go by myself. I rarely go exploring with anybody else. So, I mean, I try to be in and out like a ghost. Like you wouldn't even know I was there. I, cause I don't want the unwanted attention to places, um, from vandals or people that would 
do harm to it or even people that are just like, you know, I'm, I'm sick of having people on my property, <laughs> you know, taking pictures of this <laughs> thing or, or looking over my fence or whatever, you know? So yeah, just yep. be easy with places and, and respect, just respect for the surroundings. Yeah. I mean, that's where no tracers comes from, you know, leave no trace that you were there. I think that's the key. The key to everything that we do is to, you know, like you said, appear to be like a ghost you know like you don't want anyone to know that you were there you don't want to leave any marks and you know i think i think you're you've got the right intentions which is the most important thing and i i hope that you're right i hope that people respect these places more i think it's important that we kind of uphold the legacy but that we do tell these stories because i think that the storytelling is such a great aspect of it and you know not only that but the reason i made this podcast is because there's so many amazing photographers out there and historians like yourself that you know people don't know who you are behind your pictures and so that I, I wanted to build a platform where we could get to know these photographers and these content creators that make this artwork and and do this amazing thing that we know and love as urban exploring I think it's so such a special thing and such a niche that not the, a lot of people know about like a lot of people don't even know that this is a thing yeah yeah and uh for sure so I mean thank you for for coming on here and sharing your stories um my last question for you is what is something you know now that you wish you knew when you started exploring? Hmm. <laughs> Always have a camera. There were, there were times, uh, when I was like in my early twenties, uh, that, I, that God just, I just didn't have a camera. Like I always had a camera when I was a teenager and I shot film and stuff a lot. And then my camera broke and you, you know, it's like, yeah. There's so much stuff that's gone that I explored and I, I wish I had documented right then and there. So don't ever yeah. think you can go back to it because it's it might be gone when you go back. I've had a lot of stuff like that. It's like, oh, I always meant to take a picture of that. And then you don't and then it's gone. So take that picture. Yep. Absolutely. So if people want to keep following your journey into the world of abandonment, where can they find you online? So, yeah, I'm at Abandoned Coastal Georgia on Instagram. Um, the book Abandoned Coastal Georgia is going to be out on July 25th. It's from uh, Font Hill Media. And uh, it, should, it should be available everywhere, like your, you know, any online bookstore and stuff. And I, I'm going to try to expand that more to uh, – I don't really have a website it's it's pretty much just Instagram and the book, but I th I'm going to ex expand into other stuff like that. I don't think I'm going to go as far as like a YouTube channel or anything, but but yeah, website probably coming. All right, that was a look into the dark history of abandoned coastal Georgia. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and you look more into the history of these places we explore moving forward. I think that the history is often overlooked because we are so infatuated with the decay that we forget that there's a history behind a lot of these places. And uh, moving forward on this podcast, I'm definitely going to try to dive more into the history of places with people. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and feedback for me on Apple Podcasts. Let people know what you think of the podcast. It helps us grow. And I'll talk to you guys next time. If you want to come on the show, Hit me up at contact at notracers.com. You can also submit stories there if you would like me to read them on the podcast, but you don't necessarily want to come on the show. You can do that. All right, guys, stay strong, keep enduring, go out, go explore something, and remember, leave no trace. Mm -hmm.